I'm not interested in like being big, right? Like what I'm interested in is being able to live my life in a way to live in liberation, to be, right? And so like my work allows me, as long as I continue to like nurture that and move towards that allows me to speak from the heart and allows me to do work that I really feel in my heart can be helpful to my community. For me, liberation is like being able to create my own approaches with my community, with my friends, with my family, to be able to spend my time the way that I want it, to read a book, to travel. Those are the things that matter to me rather than like clout or... So even when I'm strategically pursuing that or positioning myself in a way to get that, it's always with an end that's not about that. It's like a tool to get to a place of liberation. Mi gente, what's good? Dímelo, dímelo. Welcome to another episode of the Quien Tu Eres podcast brought to you by Plural. You already know, it's your boy Pavel bringing you another special episode with another very special guest. As a reminder, on this podcast, our mission is to redefine professionalism because it feels like we've been trained our entire lives to believe that who we are authentically is unprofessional and inappropriate for the workplace. That's not true, though. We're here to help you unlearn that so that you can be your most authentic self at work. Each week, we have a different guest join us for a very candid conversation around their experience between professionalism and authenticity. Speaking of guests, the clip that you heard in the intro is with this week's guest, Victor Alfonso Cabral, who is a collaborative and strategic Afro-Latinx leader who is committed to making an impact in this community and beyond. These days, Victor serves as the Director of Policy and Regulatory Affairs for Fluence Training. Victor works to center BIPOC voices in the field of psychedelics by highlighting BIPOC stories in policy, advocacy efforts, art, and science. He's actually currently working on a documentary film titled We Are the Medicine, which explores the reemergence of psychedelics from the perspective of Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Based on all of the work that he's done, Victor has actually been listed on students for sensible drug policies list of 40 under 40 outstanding BIPOC leaders, and specifically for his work on psychedelic policy. In addition to that, he's received the 2022 Emerging Social Worker Leader Award from the National Association of Social Workers. To get a full bio, please be sure to check out the show notes and the episode description of this week's episode. Now that you have a little bit more context into who Victor is, let's get into this dope conversation. All right, so let's start off with the word authenticity. It's such a buzzword, yet when you hear the word, what does it mean to you? Yeah, I think authenticity is operating from your most, like your core true self as much as you can, right? And so for me, it's moving through the world in a way that's connected to my values, that's connected to who I am when I'm not with anyone, right? And how much of that I can bring out to the world, right? And so it's moving through the world in a way that's like being rather than performing. Oh, I like that. Being instead of performing. So I, when you was growing up, was it easy to live in that definition? Nah, not at all. And I think it was like, for me, it was evident at a young age for me that I was different. 
and I'm neurodivergent. And I also, so I always, I've always been kind of like emotionally attuned and always have been kind of very relational. And so that's cool when you're like, you know, maybe in elementary school, like early on, you know, but as you get older and you go into middle school and high school, there's more pressure for you to kind of, you know, find a group that you're a part of and blend in with that and become that. Right. So I think it was, it was hard. It was like, I, for safety reasons, probably I made a decision to just pretend and perform. Right. I think we all do at some point. And then, and then you get lost in that and you forget. Right. And so it was difficult when I was a kid for several reasons. So one is just, it's just kind of, I think like part of development in this country and in the systems that we live in to do that as a kid. And then, you know, it's then, you know, authenticity wasn't really something that was valued uh, in society. Go back to being neurodivergent, because I think that's something that people often hear, but don't really know what it means as well. So when you say that you're neurodivergent, what does that mean? Yeah. So I, so I, I have ADHD and it's, and I hate labeling myself with that, but I mean, it's a, it's something that helps conceptualize like what it is that I struggle with. But really a lot of executive functioning stuff for me is really difficult when it comes to organization and time management, impulse control, things like that. I have inattentive ADHD versus hyperactive, which is the differentiation that they make. And I also feel I, I'm pretty much known now that I'm older that like b- by definitions of like educational definitions that I was gifted and that I probably fell through the cracks. Right. So like kids of color who are gifted aren't are generally not identified as such. And so for me, usually what you see with those kids is that they start to misbehave because they're bored or they they're trying you're trying to fit them into an educational system that's not for them. And so they start to act out in different ways. For me, I just shut down. And so, so yeah, and in that sense, I think I'm probably like neurodivergent. I have ADHD and I also have learned differently than other people. And yeah. Well, it's not even that like you just automatically shut down and maybe I'm making up a story in my head, but I would imagine that, I don't know, maybe you're in class and you are, like you said, maybe bored, having troubling focus and Maybe you're doing something else, right? And by you shutting down, maybe that was a result of someone telling you, like, stop doing all that other stuff. Focus on this. Meanwhile, like, you're having trouble doing it. And then as a response, you know, you shut down. What was some of that early feedback that you received where you were just like, they don't understand what I'm going through? Yeah, it was early. It was in, like, elementary school. So one thing is there was a lot going on in my life. So, like, I have a lot of childhood trauma stuff. And so there was that piece of it. And then, you know, just not feeling like I was fitting into the classroom or the educational system. So I would just, like, zone out, right? One of my earliest memories, which I have thought thought about a lot, is that I had a teacher who would give us homework and it was like five times each they would make you like do each spelling word five times on a piece of paper and then you had to hand it in the next day and for me like i really didn't have any educational support at home on top of the fact that i was like now in hindsight right i was neurodivergent so i had some issues around like executive functioning and self-starting and needed that support and so i wouldn't do my homework and then they would like double it every day so it would be like 
10 times each, then 15 times each, then 20 times each, then like 50 times each, right? Like it would like just to the point where like eventually I just wouldn't do it and I would fail my classes. And uh, and that still comes back to haunt me sometimes, like that anxiety around like writing or anxiety around like certain like assignments or stuff like that. Like when I was in graduate school and undergrad, like I remember that feeling or like that of like feeling helpless and nobody was responding to my needs in terms of needing more support. And then, you know, like when I was growing up, when you got asked on a report card, like you, you got beat up right when your report card came so it was like instead of you know saying oh this kid needs more support or that you know he needs more support with these things it was like piled on right so it was like the failure and like the not fitting in not being able to do the work and then on top of that like corporal punishment so that like over time really i think took a toll yeah i mean you bringing back memories of being in middle school i remember kids post like parent teacher conference like that next day back in school like kids used to roll up their pants and be like look at the scars type of stuff and uh, yeah i remember that i mean i wasn't i always i think i fit in decently within the educational system looking back at it i definitely see the way that i was taught and i wish that it could have incorporated like other ways of learning for example like i hate reading i don't know what it is but i have such a difficult time with reading comprehension most often while like when people ask me like oh how many books have you read yo probably like three <laughs> because if i read one page i need to read that one page like three times i'll literally go through it and be like yo what was that about and literally have to read it over and in any of those type of classes which is like every class you have to read about different subjects and regurgitate the information i struggled so much like i wish back in the day there was like the audio format because i could listen to podcasts forever you know what i mean and i think yeah it's really interesting to think about it. there is many times only one way to teach people not that there is but that's how we teach kids as if there is only one way yeah and then you're punished for any other yeah. like way you try to get around that right so same thing for me i was i have trouble with reading books and and that's part of my neurodivergence. It's like mild dyslexia too. So audiobooks like have really been like once audiobooks came out and that became a thing like 10, you know, for me anyway, like 10 years ago around there, that's when I really started to like read a lot of books. But before then it was the same, it was difficult. And so again, like when I think about school, it was like, you know, we would be reading Shakespeare, reading like all this <laughs> other stuff. And it's, you know, it wasn't going well for me. So. Yeah, I think, you know, the educational system, like, really had a, an effect on me. And later on, I think a positive one because of the way that I managed it. But, but for a long time, it was like, it took me to graduate school to be able to start to be confident and, oh, I'm like, I'm able, I have like intelligence and I can do these things. But it took till then for me to start feeling confident in myself in some way. Yo, even the idea of when people say, how many books have you read? If I listened to an entire book, there's still an idea in my head that I didn't get the information properly. It's literally the same thing. If I listen to the book or read the book, as long as I'm pulling the information out of it, it's fine. But there's still a stigma in my head that's not equivalent to someone reading the book. You know what I mean? Is that something you struggle with too? 
Yeah, I mean, if I would turn my camera around here, like you would see like half, I have a whole reading library. Like I have a lot of books because I have tried to force myself me too. I want to show you my thing too. There's 20 books that I've all bought from Amazon and they're just like for display. They just look yeah. nice. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there's always, I, you know, I, if I really want to read a book and, and I have complete silence and I'm chilling and maybe I'm in like a really relaxing place, I might be able to get in some reading, but generally it's just like audiobooks are like the thing for me. And I find myself always trying to go back to like, nah, I need to read the physical. Like sometimes I'll buy the audiobook yeah. and the physical copy and sit there and try to like, I have or like sit there and try to listen and read at the same time, like the physical copy of it. Um, just but, to be um, able to save. I'm with y'all. Yeah. I did it, it too. Yeah, it's, you know, it's just a, I have this love for books generally, I think it's just like what they represent, I think. And so there's always this desire for me. And then like my little girl, you know, she's 10 now, she's about to be 11 and she reads like ridiculous amount of books a, a week. Like I told her I was going to give her $10 a book and now I'm just like, yeah, I think we, we visit the deal. <laughs> you broke, man. <laughs> yeah. Like, How about a, a hug, a book? I don't know. Yeah. So I, sometimes I want to read with her, you know what I mean? And sit down and mm. read to her and stuff like that. So it's more about these days I really don't. It doesn't bother me as much, but I think before it was like, you know, why can't I, you know, read this entire chapter book in a week like someone else can and it would mess with me. But now it's just like, there's so many ways to get information. Yeah. Shout out to technology. Yeah, for sure. Well, well, you said something interesting. You were like, it took me until grad school to feel, I think you said the word capable or intelligent or any of those things. Like, how old were you when that happened? And then what was it in that moment that kind of switched for you where you started to feel more confident? So I, I finished grad school in 2019. So I would have been, I'm 35 now. So what, that was like four years ago, I would have been 31. So I, when I went to undergraduate, I failed out of undergraduate in like 2010. I lost my financial aid because I wasn't making academic progress. I got, I was evicted from my apartment. I was at the time like struggling with my weight. I was like uh, severely overweight. I was having health issues. And so, and then I like piecemealed my degree together over eight years. So I got my undergrad in 2018 and 2014, finally. And then when I tried to go to graduate school, like I was getting rejected, like sometimes harshly by like chairs of departments, like you don't basically like you don't belong in graduate school until Dr. Phyllis Black, who's like a pioneer in ethics and social work. She gave me an interview and accepted me on the spot when she heard like the story that I had to tell. And when I got into the program, you know, the like majority of social workers are in programs are white women. And so I was like one of a couple people of color that were there and just struggling to be like, do I belong here? Am I like, I was struggling keeping up with the readings, you know, like the journal articles and all of that stuff, you know, struggling, keeping up with papers and writing. And I think what changed it for me for real was that there was an older Dominican woman from that she had just come here from DR like a few years, her master's degree in social work and I was a Puerto Rican man and like a couple Puerto Rican folks and then that one Dominican woman. And one day I was just like, yo, I haven't read any of this stuff and I haven't done my papers or done any of it. And everybody was like, 
we ain't do none of that shit either. And then I was like, yo. And that's when I realized, because I was so shut down and so to myself and so to in this story of I don't belong. And like, it's, and I was holding on to that all by myself. And when I shared it and everybody else was like, yeah, me too, bro. Like, it, it like released me from that. And then I was able to start finding ways to make it work for me and and then succeeding in that. And so like, I went from graduating with my bachelor's with like two, four, I think, or something like that to a three, six, three, seven in my master's degree without cracking a book open. And uh, cause I figured out how to play the game, right? Like how to play the educational game and how to like, how to make it work for me and the style that I wanted to learn and the way that I wanted to do things. T tell me a little bit more about that. Like when you say like you learned how to play the game, but also it sounds like you found community where y'all were able, y'all were able to share game amongst each other. So what are some of the things that you learned that made it work for you that you went from a two something to a three something? Yeah. So I think I learned very, so part of my story earlier on in my life was that when I got to middle school, I started playing basketball for the school. And so if I didn't have the grades, I couldn't play. So that, at that point, it was like, I need to figure out how to get these grades together so I could play ball. And so I learned that if they weren't going to give me the support that I needed, that I was going to have to be like, I was going to have to do it on my own. And so like through high school, I went from like, when I went into high school, I was one section behind, they had like sections in my school. I was one section behind um, being in like a special education class. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but the message that I was getting is you're not going to be able to get into college if you're like in these classes. And so by the time I graduated, I had to force my guidance counselor to put me in like accelerated courses. A school would start at 8.45. I would be at the school at 7.30 looking for the professor or the teacher that taught chemistry so they could teach me how to like do all that electron proton stuff and, you know, like that I didn't understand. So I learned how to be like resourceful and how to like figure things out on my own because I didn't have the support. So in college, I started doing the same thing. It was like, oh, I don't have to read this 30 page paper um, to understand like what the main idea is. I could just like scan it, right? And find what makes sense and then intuitively put together like what it means. And so that's when I started to feel more confident in myself because it came easy to me to be able to fill in those gaps without needing to read, you know, 200 pages every, every week. I yeah. could just look at the concepts, understand them generally, abstractly, and then be able to fill in the gaps with like my life experience and the work that I was doing in my community. And then once I started noticing, okay, I'm like, you know, sometimes I'm contributing things in the class that weren't being contributed or like I'm bringing new perspectives it started to be like, okay, like I'm onto something and like, I have something to offer, even though I don't do things like everybody else is doing them. Uh, that's a powerful sort of like scenario too. Like you go from feeling like an imposter, you don't belong to actively contributing class. <laughs> I want to go back to that moment where like, maybe you first started contributing class. Like talk, talk to me about the fears that probably went in your head. Oh, they're probably not going to take me seriously. I'm not going to make any sense or Am I worthy of having an opinion in this class? Did you have any of those sort of like fears and anxieties? Yeah, for sure. So my second year, I ended up transferring to another, the school I went to had like satellite campuses. And so I transferred out of the campus where I had 
that community that I had formed and transferred to a, a campus that was in the sticks, right? And it was just like me, and I was the only male in the class, and then there was like two people of color, and then everybody else was like white. Something that happened for me is there, there was always this fight between being raised not to be smart and raise your hand and answer questions in class, right? Or not being raised like that, but experiencing that in school, right? Like you didn't want to be the smart kid, right? You didn't want to be the kid that knew the answers and was raising his hands all the time. Going yeah. from that to like- Being a geek was not, being a geek was not cool. Yeah. And I experienced it even in undergrad, right? Sometimes. And so going into graduate school, it was kind of this other thing where it's, I didn't feel worthy of being in the room with these folks or like contributing. But I remember I had transferred to that campus because I, I built a relationship with the research methods professor because we went to India together. And the first class, she was asking questions about the scientific method and, you know, positive and negative relationships with variables, et cetera. And I had been such a geek on my own time around like looking into like physics and just like different kinds of science. And like, I, I eat all that stuff up, like on my own, like Lawrence Cross and, you know, like watching debates with Christopher Hitchens and like all of these different people. And so a lot of that stuff just made immediate sense to me. And I remember like being able to answer all those questions immediately in class before we even got started. And the reaction from like my, my, my fellow classmates was like, I thought this is something that everybody else knows and I'm just like contributing it. But it felt, yeah, it felt like, oh man, this guy knows something. And I'm like, okay, well, it just made me feel like, okay, like I do know something, right? It, it wasn't like a grandiose thing where I was like, I'm the smartest person in the class now, right? But it was like this the realization of I'm not an idiot, right? And just because I grew up in the hood and like I didn't get the same education as these folks and I don't have the same resources, it doesn't mean that I don't have, that I don't have ability and that I don't have intelligence. I just access it in a different way and it looks different. Do you think... Because I think there's a, like a duality of feelings that in that experience that probably happened. And maybe this is just me projecting on my own experience. But I think when you share your opinion and viewpoint and it lands, I think people are impressed. Right. And you're like, all right, yeah, I belong here. But also people are a little bit maybe surprised. People are like, oh, shit, I didn't expect him to say that. To put, yeah. Did you get a sense of both of those feelings? Not in that context, but definitely all the time. Yeah, I, like, I get that all the time now. It's like where people have a certain impression of me. And then when we have a conversation and it goes down like a philosophical route or it goes down like something really technical or or like policy, right? Where it's like really complicated and layered. I think people are, I get that, oh shit, kind of reaction. Can give you that look. Do people like say anything as well or is it just like a reaction? I mean, not so much anymore, right? But I'm also like more inclined to like ask for clarification if somebody tells me like you're so articulate, right? Or something like that. But I've heard those terms all the time of you're like, I'm not supposed to be articulate or I'm not supposed to be like. Um, People have told you that you're not supposed to be no, articulate? No, but it's implied, right? It's, it's kind of like this underhanded thing of, oh my God, you're so articulate. I didn't expect you to be, right? That's the tone of the reaction. So yeah, but not, I don't think I experience it so much anymore, but again, like I work remotely and the field that I work in is, I know a lot of the people already. So I'm sure that if I was in another, like in another context or in another place, like sometimes I'm speaking to legislators or like 
folks that I don't know. And you can tell that there's an initial kind of like the first time I showed up for to a press conference, right, to speak with like dreadlocks and my tattoos, right, and like all this stuff and like the looks that you get. And, the, and then you see the transition when you start speaking or start imparting knowledge, then like that shifts and you can sense that I can anyway. When did you start embracing how you look these days? Like you mentioned your hair, tattoos, I see piercings. I'm assuming at one point you kind of hit a lot of those things. And then at some point you started embracing them step by step. Like what, when was that change for you? So I feel like there was always a desire to, I've always been into tattoos. Like I see it as an art form. I see it like, and dreadlocks and, but there was this fear of like how I was going to be perceived. Right. And so when I got, so when I graduated in 2019, I got a fellowship with the governor of Pennsylvania. I got selected. I was the first male of color to be selected for that. It was me. And me and a woman were the only people of color that were selected out of, I don't know, it was 13 of us total. And I got into the governor, into this governor's fellowship and I was put in the department of DHS in the executive offices. And, you know, I got one suit, like, you know, I still only have one suit. I'm going to be real with you. Yeah. So, you know, people are dressing up in suits every day. You know, this is like high level government stuff that work that I've never done before. There's not a lot of people that look like me. So I'm battling, like, you know, feeling kind of out of place. And, but I had, when I graduated, I started to grow my hair out, right. With the intention of doing braids in my hair. And when you graduated, was that your validation? You were like, oh, at least I graduated. I could, if somebody questions me, this is my, hey, I'm capable kind of thing. No, it was more of so it was just like I want to grow my hair out and and like I had braids when I was younger, you know, and I had and I had more awareness around the history of like our hair as part of the African diaspora and all of that. So I was like, I want to grow my hair out. But I was still I was doing it, but like I was still scared, like I was growing it out, but there was no guarantee that it was going to go anywhere. But then one day. There was one, this was like 2020, I want to say it was 2019, maybe. I braided my hair after, you know, going back and forth in my head of being scared. And at that point, I was like, fuck it, I'm going to braid it and let these white people look at me however they want. So I braid it and I show up to work and I'm in the elevator and there's a woman and a man. And then there's my colleague, a good friend of mine, who's a queer white woman and or gay white woman. And she... We're, you know, we always chilling, like she's like an ally, you know, I, I trust her, we talk a lot. And while I'm in the elevator, the ladies, oh, the dude says to me like, oh, you look very nice today. Mind you, like everyone there wore suits that day. I couldn't wear my suit every day. So I just had a button up and a tie and I'm like, okay, like whatever. And then the lady turns to me and she goes, do you dress up for work every day? And I'm like, and the moment I didn't catch it, I'm like whatever we get off the elevator and then my friend stops me and she was like did you like she's just like checking in with me i'm like and then i thought about it and i'm like oh she like why would she ask me that like everyone else has a tie on and a shirt and but because i had cornrows in my hair right it was like you must be dressing up for an occasion if there's no way that like you actually work here that's what it came across as so that i went through that like exacerbated my like the anxiety and all of that I was going through.
but then it angered me. And then at that point I was like, okay, now I'm going to grow this shit out. And, and then I was actually promoted out of the office that I was in, in directly into the governor's office and had a boss that was like really supportive and really, you know, grew up in the hood, you know, and, and understood kind of like <clears throat> the background that I came from and just allowed space for me to be who I was. And that's when I like, you know, I, I started my dreads, I pierced my nose. And then in my relationship with him, he gave me a promotion. And then I started showing, then he started to be like, I can't make it to this press conference and send me to go speak. And Whoa. then I would go up, you know, with like my dreads and all this. And people were like looking at me like, what the hell, you know? And then, but then I would speak. And then those invites got even more, more frequent. And, and for me, there was something about like showing up in that way and showing people like I got tattoos, I got piercings, I got dreadlocks and I'm still here like doing this and, and I'm doing it just as good or better than the people that are standing here. That's fascinating that that moment of a weird comment or awkward interaction, like I feel like a lot of people, that would make them do the opposite of what you did. Like, I feel like most people would start hiding, maybe cut off their braids or do something. And for you, it's fascinating that in so many instances throughout your early years, if you feel like not capable and all of these things, there you were. And it made you angry enough to say, fuck it. Yeah. Like I wasn't there. You know, another thing is going into that role, like there was a lot of responsibility that I took on my shoulders or, or like, you know, I need to like represent and I need to do the work while I'm here for like my community. That's what I wanted to do. That's is why I took this job and I came here. And so like, part of that is like also the image and how I showed up. So like beyond just like this, like I showed up to a press conference that like we established the first racial day of healing in Pennsylvania history. And I took my daughter up to the podium with me when I spoke. You know, the first lady of Pennsylvania was there, like my boss was there and I brought my daughter with me and she stood right next to me while I told, you know, while I talked about like our heritage and like all the people that have suffered to, for us to be able to be here today and all of that. So it was like I was on this mission to like really make the most impact that I could. And I and at some point I stopped caring about longevity in a government job because I didn't feel like it was my path anyway so i was like i'm gonna do what i'm gonna do and and the impact that i want to make is going to come from me showing up authentically right mm -hmm. so i don't do talking points right i would write my own speeches or i like would show up with my own narrative around what i was speaking about and that's uh, and for me like the way that i perceive it is exactly what happened right like people really embrace that Oh, tell me a little bit about that. You said, because I think oftentimes we talk about sort of these negative experiences and, ne and the negative thoughts that come into our heads around like the worst case scenarios. But it sounds like you were also embraced positively by a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, for sure, like my direct, you know, my the my the person I was reporting to directly, his name's Dan German. It's like a wonderful human being, like one of the best bosses I've ever had in my life, was in my corner and was also showing up very authentically and also challenging the way things were being done. And so 
Ooh, um, tell me about that. What did yeah. he do that you were like, yo, this guy's dope. If he could do it, I could do it. Yeah, I mean, he would just, you know, it wasn't like a, yeah. So he would just like, he would just call shit out and say, this isn't working. We need to like, or this process is way too slow and people need help or like, why are we spending $70,000 a year to put a kid in foster care when you can give their parents $1,000 so they could keep the roof over their head instead of putting splitting up the family and traumatizing them? So, And he was very, like, he was very passionate about that because it was his experience as a kid, right? So, like, he would, like, I, so I strategically got myself put in that office because I saw him speak somewhere about, like, how his mom was still working at Walmart and all this stuff. And I was like, this is the dude. He understands like what what we're here to do and then everybody around me that mattered right like my community my colleagues that that were on the same mission as me like i i felt their embrace and i felt the encouragement from them and that's what mattered the most to me right in terms of like uh, understanding or being able to show up in a way that was that was impactful and that you know when a kid was watching the news or picked up a newspaper and saw me up there with like my dreadlocks and all of that. They were like, I could see myself reflecting in that. Yeah. I mean, there you said a couple things that that is is powerful. It's, of course, you're gonna feel more comfortable being yourself in those environments where there's a level of like psychological safety, right? Like you don't have to worry about how you show up when your manager is already supportive and telling you like, nah, I got your back, and He's not only saying it, but he's modeling the behavior that you essentially want for yourself. Like, I often get the question like, yo, how do you get people to share their life experiences around like the workplace and all these things? And I'm like, they share it with me because I'm very vulnerable in my experience and people respect that. So they mirror and model that behavior. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, like that time that I spent with Dan, who at the time he was the executive director of the governor's office of advocacy and reform was like the most growth I've experienced professionally in my life. Right. And it was because here was this person that was like, be yourself and who you are is like, is valuable to this office and to the work that we're going to do together. And I still have a relation. I just talked to him like two, three days ago. He's the CEO of an organization in Florida now, and he's working down there with kids that have like complex medical issues. But like the growth that I experienced gave me a level of, I didn't fear the system anymore because I knew that even if the system came back and came after me, like I, I trusted that he was going to protect me. And, and he also set me up. So like, as soon as I got there, the conversation was about like, what's your trajectory and like where What's the plan to put you like where you need to be at so that this job becomes something that catapults you into something more, you know, that's more, uh, that's bigger for you. And that's exactly what happened, like in the time that I was there. And then we ended up leaving within a week of each other, right? Wow. He left, either he left and then I left immediately after or the other way around. But it was like, once we did the work that we were going to do and we grew together and we did what we were going to do, we both moved on to the next thing. Wow. And speaking of the next thing, I think it's fascinating some of the work that you're doing these days, <laughs> because, listen, if I tell my abuela that I'm smoking hookah, she thinks I'm a drug addict. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you're doing so much work to 
destigmatize, but also raise awareness for a possible solution for many people when it comes to just like supporting their daily lives in the world of psychedelics. You're not the only one, but you are doing a lot of work in there. There's so many potential stigmas around that and whatnot. Like, how do you grapple with that? Or at this point, you're just like, listen, this is what I'm interested in. I don't really care what people think. Like, how do you think about all those things? Yeah, so this was all like intentional for me. So I had my first experience with psilocybin in 2016, right before I went into graduate school. So that also helped me through like graduate school. I didn't mention that. So interesting. Um, okay, that was a shift for me, and and I knew that I wanted to do this work. So like through graduate school, I did like my graduate research on psychedelics. I got trained as a therapist in psychedelics like throughout the years. I worked on psychedelic legislation while I was in the governor's office. I educated people in the state about psychedelics. And it was scary as shit. Honestly, when I was in the governor's office, like I didn't talk about psychedelics as adamantly and as openly as I do right now. But I knew that I was going to because I knew I wouldn't have, you know, it's just I work in the governor's office. Right. So it's, you know, right. Anything that I say or do is going to be tied back to the governor. And so, and this was like during, you know, the elections and Pennsylvania was like wilding, right? So so for me, it was very intentional. And when I got to the point where it was like, okay, my boss is leaving. I know I don't want to stay here. I know that I'm not going to be able, like I could transition somewhere else and make more money, but I can't stay here because I'm not going to be able to continue to be myself. Is when I made the jump out, right, of state government. And very intentional. Like, I already knew, like, I'm a licensed therapist. I've worked for the governor's office and did good work in that, right? I've, I have community recognition. I have statewide recognition because of the visibility of the job that I was doing. And so I think I'm, I have enough credibility that when I start to talk about these things, people are going to listen. And so I quit the governor's office on Friday. Saturday, I started filming a documentary on psychedelics. Monday, I was on Sway in the morning talking about psychedelics. We dropped an article that week in NPR on psychedelics. And then it was all very, very intentional with keeping in mind, you know, that the risk that I was taking. So as that was happening, there was like a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear. But now it's just, you know, I've, you know, I made a career, you know, in this and there's no turning back. Right. So I'm already (laughs) in. So, yeah. I didn't know that was that there was like a personal tie to it around a positive impact that you had with that. Oh, yeah. And and no wonder why you're like, oh, shit. Well, it's kind of like the model behavior that you had with your manager at the time was like, whoa, he's doing it. It's working for him. Let me try it. Now you're like, whoa, I tried this. It's working for me. Let me help other people with it. Yeah, with psychedelics, it's like when you talk about authenticity and my experience with psychedelics, right? For me, it helped me really get in touch with my core self, right? And really shed a lot of the the programming. And so I knew immediately, you know, work. I was working as a therapist in the hood. So I'm seeing like how people are being put on four and five medications, on, you know, with PTSD for five, six years, not getting any better. And then I'm, you know, I'm somebody who's suffering from depression, anxiety, ADHD, all of these things. And I have this amazing experience that really changed my life, quite frankly. 
And, and I knew like, this is a medicine that could really be supportive to our communities. And so my goal and my passion and my mission now is just to like empower, not empower, but to educate and to share so that people can make their own decisions because these things are coming, right? MDMA is going to be a legal therapy by mid 2024. Psilocybin is going to follow behind that. The American Medical Association just approved the first codes for psychedelic assisted therapy. There's 25 plus states across the country passing legislation around psychedelics. And so for me, it was just like, yeah, this, it changed my life. It's in so many different ways that I could get into, but, and we need to like educate our community so that they're ready to engage with these things in the way that they feel in a decolonized way. Right. And not in the way that they is spoon fed by the people in the ivory towers, as they say, right. Yeah, I mean, that could be a whole other episode. But as we wrap up, because we're running out of time, listen, like, your reach is getting larger. You're being seen by more people, Uh, bigger audiences, different audiences. I don't know. Some people say it's easier as they move up because they can call their own shots. Now you're not working for, you know, some government where you have to worry about their perception. Some people say it's more difficult, though as they move up because there's more eyes on them. That means more pressure. And what about for you? It seems like you're continuing to try to be your most authentic self. I want to know why. Why do you continue to do it? What inspires you to continue being your most authentic self in these spaces? Because it's not easy and it's not that I don't go through the ups and downs of that, but I'm not interested in like being big, right? Like what I'm interested in is being able to live my life in a way that feel that and uh, to live in liberation to be right and so like my work allows me as long as i continue to like nurture that and move towards that allows me to speak from the heart and allows me to do work that i really feel in my heart can be helpful to my community with the experience that i had i could go down to dc and get a job as a lobbyist somewhere and make a ton of money and be all right right so there's a need in my experience to stay connected to that authenticity in order to remain sane and to remember what's real and what matters. And so what real and what matters to me is like my wife, my kids, my community, my friends. And so how do I continue to remember that as I do that work? And when it starts to feel like the getting bigger or moving up or the reputation is like overtaking that, then it means that I don't belong in that space anymore. And that I need to do something else. And it does get harder because as you grow, in my experience, like there's more of a realization of more responsibility. And that if I want to break out of the system, then I need to be able to create, I need to like take control of my life and make that happen. And that's a lot of responsibility. It can be easier to just work a job and get a paycheck. And that's okay too. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. But for me, liberation is like being able to create my own approaches with my community with my friends with my family to be able to spend my time the way that i wanted to read a book to travel those are the things that matter to me rather than like clout or so even when i'm strategically pursuing that or positioning myself in a way to get that it's always with an end that's not about that it's like a tool to get to a place of liberation Mi gente, that wraps up another episode of the Quintueras podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, do us a favor, share, comment, 
tell a friend to tell a friend and if there's option to leave a rating and a review please do so because it's going to help us in the algorithms to ensure that these experiences get heard by as many people as possible that's the only way that we're going to redefine professionalism through sharing our experiences thank you see you next time